Today's Bible reading comes from Jonah chapter 4. It's titled Jonah's Anger at the Lord's Compassion. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong and he became angry. He prayed to God, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. Tarshish, sorry. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Joan had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give him shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm that chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there, has, there are more than a hundred and twenty thousand people who cannot tell right hand from left, and also many animals. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second Bible reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, verses 11 to 32. Let's read it together. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. 
Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, today we, uh, we conclude our series on the book of Jonah, that Old Testament book with that extraordinary tale. And as we come to the last chapter, I want to think about endings. What makes a really good movie is often its ending, isn't it? Uh, and you think about the, the movies that you've really loved, the ending really shapes the way you reflect on the film itself. I think the, the quintessential example is that 2000 film, The Sixth Sense. Now, if you haven't seen it, I'm not going to ruin the ending for you now, but it is really one of those films where you, when you watch it the first time, you watch it one way until you get to the very last scene in the movie, and then it changes the way you think about all the characters and the plotline and the, and the whole progression of the story. And it means that when you go back the second time, the third time, the fourth time, and watch it again, each time it's fascinating, but you'll never watch it the same way as that first time that you watched the film. Such is the power of the ending. It just transforms the way that you hear and interact with the story. Now, I think actually Jonah chapter 4 is a bit like that. It's one of those endings which, once you've read, will reshape the way you think about the book and about Jonah. Last week, we finished at the end of chapter 3 of Jonah. And uh, if you remember that chapter, we finished with rejoicing because Nineveh, that great city of rebellion, had repented and come back to the Lord, and the Lord had relented. And so the story had finished on a real high. Now, we've broken it because for the sake of this series, we focus each week on one chapter of the book. But now, uh, when we return to chapter 4, we probably miss some of the, the transition, the jarring nature of chapter 4. Because if you were reading the book of Jonah like you probably were meant to in, in Hebrew time, what would have struck you is that you've gone from that extraordinary story to chapter 4, verse 1, where it says, But to Jonah this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. It's an extraordinary transition. It's certainly not what you accept. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. In fact, back in that original language of Hebrew, which the book was written in, seemed very angry. Is greatly, could also be translated greatly evil. Greatly evil. There's been a few great things in this story. There was that great storm. There was the great fish. There was the great nation of Nineveh. And now... There is apparently a great evil in Jonah's eyes, and that great evil is that God has shown mercy to Nineveh, that God has shown mercy to Nineveh and to its king. And if that's not enough, that idea that it, it, was, uh, it, it troubled Jonah could also be translated, he burned with anger. He burned with anger. In fact, that phrase, he burned with anger, 
is found in a few spots in the Old Testament, most famously in Genesis chapter 4, around the story of two brothers, Cain and Abel. If you remember their names, Cain is the older brother who kills his younger brother Abel. And before he kills him in the first murder in the history of the world, he burns with anger. And so as the writer is retelling Jonah's story, he wants us to remember for a brief moment the emotion, the driving motivation of Cain is found here in Jonah. Here he is, he's burning with anger against the Ninevites. It's not the picture that we expected of Jonah, this prophet. And this moment reshapes the way that we think about the book. It shapes the way we think about Jonah. It shapes the way that we think about this whole book of Jonah. And it asks us questions about what we think about God. And in fact, those three things are the things that I want us to think about as we we finish this series. How do we now think about Jonah? How do we think about God? And how do we think about this book? Slightly different order. Jonah, book, God. Let's try that. Now, how does it make us think about Jonah? I think this ending makes us go back and look at the story of Jonah and think slightly differently. Chapter 1. You remember when Jonah declared, I'm a Hebrew and I worship the God of the Hebrews? It was a, it was a very confident declaration at the time. I, I mean, when we heard that, we thought, well, there's a strong prophet. There's a man of his convictions. There's, there's one who wants to stand for the Lord. But now we go back and we think, oh, maybe that was just nationalism on Jonah's part. Maybe he just liked the idea of setting himself up against the sailors, a bit of us and them mentality. He is a Hebrew and they are pagans, so to speak. And remember his prayer in chapter two, that prayer which lacked repentance at the time, well, we gave him the benefit of the doubt. We could see a lot of value in the prayer, but now this ending makes us go back and think about that prayer and think that was a very arrogant prayer, actually. Jonah saw no need to repent. Because Jonah was still the hero of the story in his own eyes. And chapter 3, remember when Jonah went into the town of Nineveh and he said, judgment is coming in 40 days? Well, that wasn't actually what he was asked to preach. He was meant to preach repentance to the Ninevites. And they did actually repent anyway. But now we look back at his message and we realise that it's actually a fairly merciless message. Jonah didn't want them to repent after all. He just wanted judgment to come. God had sent him. And at first we look like obedience, but actually it was not full obedience, it was partial obedience. And it was, a, it was really an attempt for him to condemn the Ninevites rather than to rescue them. And now we look at chapter 4 and we look at what Jonah is saying, you know, the pro- pronouns I and me keep popping up. And we realise that actually for Jonah, he is the central character. He's the central character. You know, all this... As we think about Jonah, all of this really reminds us of a very central point in the Bible, and particularly the Old Testament. There are no real Old Testament heroes, so to speak. No models that we're meant to be exactly like. And Jonah is definitely not a model. If you remember, at the start of chapter 1, I said to you that Jonah was in this whole list of prophets. Great names for whom the word of the Lord had come to. And in a sense, it made us think that Jonah was... I guess um, one of those iconic figures in the Old Testament, and to a certain extent he is, but not for the reasons we might have immediately thought. See, Jonah is not a hero. You know, we, we always long for humans who we can, we can become like. As a little child, we look at a sporting hero, we want to be like them. But I think spiritually so. When we encounter the Bible, we have a tendency to try and find characters in the Bible who we're meant to be like. But the Bible's constant reminders is each of those characters, though they have things about them which are genuinely good, 
are not the kind of models of faith that we're ultimately meant to be like. Uh, there's always something that's, that's wrong with them, and that's true of Jonah too. Now, as I said to you, the ending doesn't just change the way we think about Jonah, it changes the way we think about this book as, the, uh, as a whole. Jonah is actually a book in, in a section of the Old Testament called the Book of the Twelve or the Minor Prophets. And these are, all, these are all short little books. Towards the end of the Old Testament, you'll find them. And, uh, and, and they're actually combined together so that Israelites would, would read them all as one, not just as an individual book of Jonah like we've read today, but as a combined group of books. They'd read them all together. And at the heart of that, those books, a re- repeating theme was a rebuke to the nation of Israel. So each, many of the prophets were rebuking Israel because they were a nation that was arrogant. They were a nation which had no care or concern for the surrounding populations. In Micah, the the Lord asked them to walk justly, love mercy, and be humble. The reason, because they're none of those things. Now, we start to look at Jonah, this book, as part of that context, and we see that the person Jonah is a reflection, in a sense, of Israel as a nation. It's not just a story of one person, a recounting of his life. God is using Jonah, in a sense, as a parable about the whole nation of Israel. It's a teaching tool, as much as it's a personal history of of an individual's encounter with God and, and this nation of Nineveh. It's a teaching tool to teach Israel and us, as we read this book later, something deeper. It's a parable. Now, as I say parables... That, that should probably set off a, a few alarms in your head. You've heard that word before, even if you're not a reader of the Bible. You've heard of the word parable, and parables are little stories. Jesus told lots of parables. Uh, Matt, who just read for us before, read us probably the most famous parable in the New Testament, the parable of the prodigal son, which Jesus taught from Luke 15. And what you'll see, I think, is a lot of correlations, actually, between the message of that parable in Luke 15 and the message of Jonah. Remember the story of Luke 15? Maybe you tuned out for a while. <laughs> Maybe you're getting your wine and your bread for communion or, or you just... It's been a, it was a tough night and uh, you switched off. Let me remind you of the story. It was about two brothers. The younger brother went to his father of course, before his father was dead, and asked him for his inheritance. What, what an extraordinary thing to say. What a, what a cutting, cutting request. Basically saying to his father, I want you dead. But given you're not dead, can I have your money anyway, or my share of your money? And his father gives it to him. And that son goes off, disregards his father, spends his money in wild living, we're told, until he foolishly burns it all up, only to realise that he is at his life's end. He has no more resources left, and so he decides to return to his father and offer himself as a slave to his father. That character perhaps reminds us of Nineveh, that great nation who turned its back on God, who said, give me all that you have, but paid no respect to the Lord, who went off and lived in wealth and prosperity and power, completely godless and a completely irreligious character. But do you notice also the correlation, not just with the younger brother in Nineveh, but with Jonah, perhaps, and that older brother? You know, the older brother who, when the younger brother eventually returns and there's a party thrown for him and there's a celebration because he's repented and he's come back to his father. The older brother who sits distant from the house, a bit like Jonah who sat distant from the nation of Israel and looked on, uh, sorry, the nation of Nineveh and looked on. 
unhappy with the rejoicing that was taking place? And did you notice the older brother who cursed and grumbled with the father? A bit like Jonah, who sat on that hill and cursed and grumbled against God's kindness to Nineveh. Now, why do I draw these connections between these two characters? Because I think the message of the prodigal son is the same message as the book of Jonah is in many ways, actually. And it's this, that the brokenness of the human heart knows no distinction between irreligion, that's the younger brother, that's Nineveh, those who turn their back on God, knows no distinction between irreligion and religion. That's Jonah. That's the people who do what God asks them to do, who do his tasks, who do his responsibilities. There's no distinction between irreligion and religion in terms of the brokenness of the human heart. It's in everyone's heart, actually, that brokenness. It reminds me of this moment uh, in the Nuremberg Trials, which is quite famous and well written about, where um, one of the reporters was watching the Nuremberg Trials. These were the trials that took place after World War II, where Nazi collaborators and, and significant leaders were brought before the International Court of Justice and asked to answer for their, their crimes, the horrific crimes that they'd committed during World War II. And as each of these men got up and answered for their, for their crimes, what struck the reporter was just the ordinariness of each of these people. They'd, they'd committed such extraordinarily evil acts but when you encountered them in the dock there, dressed in civilian clothes, they looked just like and they acted just like you and I. In fact, the author said the dividing line between good and evil runs through every human heart. That was her extraordinary insight. You know, that evil, you, you don't know evil people just by looking at them. They look just like any other person. In fact, every person has this strange meeting point between good and evil. And, and I guess Jonah is trying to, the book and the Bible is trying to challenge us, you know, that we don't just, the Bible doesn't just characterise evil people as a certain group and good people as another group. That actually, that the brokenness of the human heart is in all people. In some people, like, like Nineveh and like the younger brother, it's apparent automatically. You know, they're the people who overtly reject God in their lifestyle, in their priorities, in their choices. They are overtly selfish. They overtly turn their back on God. And for them, the brokenness of their heart is so clear, so clear. But for other people, it's not as clear immediately because, in a sense, their brokenness is kind of covered up by religious practice. You know, for those of us who are regulars here at St. Stephen's, for whom church attendance and church ministry and church work and church giving even are things that we... We do regularly. Jonah and the older brother are the bigger challenge, actually. Because even though you've got all this religious practice, you're pouring yourself into this effort, there is a brokenness in your heart and my heart as well. And the challenge is that it just takes the right circumstances. You know, we all have these cracks, these fissures in our It just takes the right pressure to reveal that brokenness. And that's what it was for Jonah just took the right pressure, you see. I guess if Nineveh hadn't, hadn't repented and God had destroyed them, we may not have seen the brokenness in Jonah's heart, but it still existed. The fact that Nineveh did repent and that God was merciful was the kind of pressure that revealed the deep selfishness in Jonah's heart, which was otherwise hidden by his religious practice. And that's a really important challenge of the Bible, of this book, of the Christian faith, actually, is 
that the brokenness of the human heart knows no distinction between irreligion and religion. It doesn't matter whether you fall on one side or the other. Both of us, whether you're an irreligious person, you generally have nothing to do with church at all. You think that in the end it's just up to you to make life work. Or whether you're a religious person who pours themselves into religious life. The brokenness of the human heart is found in both groups of people. Now, as I said to you, though, and I've, I've maintained this through this series, this book is primarily not about Jonah and it's not about the Ninevite kings or the sailors or the great fish, as extraordinary and captivating as each of those elements are in the, in the story of Jonah. No, this is a book about God. And even in this last chapter, we're forced to ask questions about God's character. And what happens in this last chapter is that God's character and Jonah's character are placed right next to each other. And what we see is the startling difference, don't we? As we meet Jonah in this, he's a bit like a petulant child. You know, he's grumpy about what's happening. He's angry about what's happening. In fact, his anger is quite deep. Remember, he burned with anger like Cain. And he keeps throwing these lines at God. And God, like a kind father, an extraordinary patient and kind father, meets every answer, doesn't he? I mean, he's not a permissive father because at times he takes things away from Jonah, like the vine. But we have a sense that God is a God who loves Jonah, even in this moment as he tries to shape Jonah and redirect his emotion, redirect his emotion to compassion rather than passionate anger. You know, sometimes you and I, we, we're going through hardship and our temptation is to attribute to God evil motives. But he is a kind father who, even in times of hardship, is using hardship to shape us and make us more like him. And the story of Jonah is a reminder that that is what he's doing. But interestingly, chapter 4 is not just even about Jonah, is it? God's character, God is not just committed to Jonah, he's committed to Nineveh, and then did you notice at the end of the chapter he talked about animals? A strange one-off line right at the end. What's the point of that? Well, it's not, it's not a mandate for veganism or for environmentalism, although the Bible has lots to say about how we should care for our planet. Right now, in this, in this section of Jonah, that's not really what it's about. It's actually, it's actually a picture into God's heart that God is actually concerned to redeem the whole of creation. The whole of creation. That his heart is not just for one person or one nation like Nineveh or Israel, but for the whole world. The whole of creation that is, as Paul would say in Romans, under the bondage of sin. That is, that is groaning under sin. That is broken because of sin. God's heart is to redeem it. We've seen that through the story, haven't we? The way that he treated those sailors. The way that he brought them back. This unwitting group of men caught in the story of Jonah, who themselves are redeemed in that moment. The way that he treated Jonah in the fish, the way how quickly he saved him and reset him on, on track for, for his mission and purpose in life. The way he treated Nineveh. And that, that kind of pattern that we see in Jonah, we also see in the New Testament. Uh, the prodigal son, the beautiful thing about the prodigal son is, of course, the father figure, isn't it? the joy, the willingness that he has to welcome the son back, the younger son back, and the gentleness with which he, he treats the older son like God treated Jonah. That is God's character. You know, the repeating word actually in the chapter 15, which has a, a couple of other parables about lost things being found, is the word rejoicing. 
See, God rejoices to find people who are lost. He rejoices to find rebels who run away from him. He rejoices to run after them. He rejoices to pay grace to them. That is the kindness of God. That is not the God of your creation. That is the God of the Bible. That is the God of the scriptures. That is the God of generations and ages. That is the God of the beginning and the end. He rejoices to find people who are lost. That is God's character. And that's the thing that's so startling about God, that he's so tender-hearted. He's tender-hearted in Jonah. He's tender-hearted in the, uh, in the parable of the prodigal son. Now, that's, that's the book, right? But it feels a bit abrupt, doesn't it, the ending? It feels a bit abrupt. Almost like the, ma- the manuscript was, was ripped off at the end. <laughs> we left off the ending. I don't think so, though. I think it's, it ends kind of in an abrupt sense to leave some questions for you and I. In a sense, it's saying to us, over to you. I remember in my, uh, one of my early years at university, I did a performance studies subject. And at the time, we, we studied absurdist theatre. And in one of those examples, there was a story of a, a little theatre production, which had a one-man production. And the guy would come in dressed in his full suit, ready for work. Uh, he'd have his breakfast. He'd walk out the door. And then he'd come back and, and you know, the, the, the lighting changed so that it implied that the day had passed and it was into the evening. He'd come back, he'd have dinner, he would uh, read the paper, he'd watch a bit of TV, he'd brush his teeth, he'd get changed, he'd hop into bed, he'd go to sleep. And then the lighting would change again and imply it was morning, he'd get up and he'd, he'd get ready, he'd have his breakfast, he'd go off to work. And, and then the cycle just continued. It just continued and it continued and it continued. Eventually... A couple of members of the audience got a bit bored. They realised that they'd probably paid for less than they expected. And so they up and left. And after a few people left, well, the trickle became a flow and, and slowly the audience emptied itself until it got to the very last member. And then, with that last member in the audience, the play ends. And the point, there's always a point in a Berserdus play, the point was that the audience was actually a character in the drama. That the audience was responsible for resolving the play itself. They weren't meant to be passive. In fact, them leaving was part of the storytelling technique. And to bring the story to the end, everyone but one audience member had to leave. And in a sense, Jonah's story is inviting us not to be passive either. It's inviting us to see that we as audience members, as readers, as hearers of this story, are not to just take it in and say, extraordinary story, great piece of literature. I loved how the Hebrew was such a storytelling language. I loved the characters. I loved the, I loved the unexpected turns and the moments. No, no, no. This book is challenging us to respond. And its challenge is asking us a few questions. Two questions, actually. The first question it's really asking us as it comes to this ending is this. Do you have a heart for the lost like the Lord has a heart for the lost? Do you have a heart for the lost? Or are you like Jonah? Are you deep down someone who sits on the hill and grumbles when people you least expect have come back to the Lord? Are you someone who's most concerned about yourself? Is your language I and me? Or are you ready to open the circle to breach it and to welcome people in. Now, next week, so exciting. We are meeting here in this building again. That is fantastic. But I want to ask you, what is, what is our desire for meeting back? Why do we want to be back here? You know, I asked um, those people who receive our regular email this week, in, in the email, I asked us all a question. If Jesus was planning a return 
to site, if he was in charge of the return to site team, what would be his consuming desire? What would be the thing that he would hope we achieved when we came back? Well, I think if Luke 15 is an insight into Jesus' heart, then I think he'd long for this building to be filled with people who were lapsed Christians, who'd never been to church Christians, who'd given it a break Christians, who thought that it was dumb until now Christians. I think he'd want those kind of people. He'd want people who've not been in this building to be in this building. He'd, pe he'd want people who were overtly, self-referentially rebels from the Christian faith, from Jesus and from what he's brought into the world to come back to him. He'd want the lost to be in this building and he'd want to plan everything so that they felt comfortable in this building, so they felt welcomed. And that's our challenge, isn't it? To have a heart for the lost to be people so shaped by the lost. Now, that's the first question, but I think there's a more pertinent question, actually, and it's, do you have a heart for the Lord? Because ultimately, actually, this book is about God, isn't it? It's about, it's about knowing God and loving God. Do you have a heart for the Lord? Now, that seems like a fairly straightforward question, but think about Jonah, because on the surface, Jonah appeared to be one who had a heart for the Lord. Remember, he made the declaration, he prayed the prayer, he went on mission. All the things that we kind of think about as people who are activated for the Lord. But when you get to chapter 4, you realise you can do all of those things and not have a heart for the Lord. You can be totally consumed by yourself and your own needs. Do you have a heart for the Lord? When you think about Jonah, actually, it's pretty startling. It's pretty challenging because you can look at your life and see, I'm doing all those things and still question, do I actually have the right heart? How do you get that heart? Well, actually, the key is the thing that's been running through this whole book. You need to know God's character. You need to be confronted by God's character. Every week, every chapter, we've been reminded of who God is. And that's actually the key. You don't get a heart for the Lord by just saying, I'm going to love God more. No, you get a heart for the Lord. You love God more by first seeing that God loved you. You know, in the, in the New Testament, over and over, the thing that reoccurs is not prayers that we would love God first and foremost, but that we would know that God loved us. We know the deep love of God for us. And Jonah, keep, the book, keeps showing us God's character because ultimately the key to transforming your heart is to have a richer understanding of God and who he is and what he's done for you. That deep love of God, that character of God found in the book of Jonah ultimately is shown in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who went into the town to declare not just judgment, but an opportunity for repentance and forgiveness. Jesus Christ, who, who left his hometown, his great royal throne, to join us. Jesus Christ, who suffered and didn't just spend three days in the belly of a whale, but three days in the grave for us. Jesus who bore the full judgment of God's wrath so that repentance really is something worth running after. Is that the God that you know? See, the book of Jonah is a book for rebels. It reminds us that you and I are actually rebellious at the core of our heart. But God's grace is good and rich and freely available. It's costly. It costs Jesus his own life.
but it's freely available to you and I. And I want to invite you, maybe you've been listening along in this series, each week you've thought, interesting sermon, nice ideas. I want, I want you to be captured by God's love for you in Jesus Christ and to hand your life over to him. I'm going to pray for us now, and after that, we're going to spend some time celebrating the Lord's Supper where we are reminded of how rich God's grace is to us when Jesus Christ gave his life for us. Let me pray. Kind Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who left his home, who brought us a message of hope by finding himself flung into the very very bowels of hell itself. We thank you that as he experienced judgment, we can experience life. And we thank you that his sacrifice for us is the ultimate statement of your deep love for us. We pray that we would believe that and that believing it, you would transform our hearts and help us to live for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.